Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. I'm going to stop saying that this is a very special edition of Life in the Neurotypical Universe because there really is no such thing as a normal edition of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. Just like all of us humans, where there's no such thing as normal, there really is no such thing as a normal edition. But in this case, we have Dr. Dave from Vanderbilt Frist Center of Autism. And he and I had a great time chatting. While we were chatting, we again just kept the recorder going. And we ended up with really enough material to make three episodes. I edited them into breaks to make them reasonable length episodes. With that, we'll join into the show. On today's episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe, we have Dr. Dave Cadell who's a physicist at Vanderbilt. He's also the executive director of Vanderbilt's Frist Center for Autism and Innovation and an autism self-advocate. Well, welcome to the show, Dave, and tell us a little bit about you and how you got involved with the autism world other than, as a self-advocate, obviously, having it. Well, yeah, absolutely, Tim. And for the record, too, most of my life, I didn't realize I was autistic. I mean, like anyone who's autistic, I always knew I was weird and different and that neurotypicals were very difficult to understand, but they were seemingly operating on a different operating system than myself. But in uh, 2009, a friend of mine, as a joke, told me that she thought I had Asperger's syndrome. And because I don't get sarcasm well, I thought she was being serious. So I researched it so I could come back to her and point by point give her a list of how wrong she was. And the more I researched it, the more I started to realize that A, I had a lot of misconceptions about autism, and B, I really could be autistic. A lot of it was kind of making sense. But when you look at like psychologists and stuff and the official listings and the, and, and the manuals, it can be very confusing as an autistic person trying to figure out whether, because, you know, number one, I'd be like, oh, that's definitely me. Number two, that's not me. So I'd be like, I do have autism. I don't have autism. It, it got very confusing until I started reaching out to other autistic individuals and by reaching out, I mean like finding them on YouTube and stuff like that and listening to them explain their life experiences and stuff. And that's when I really started to think, wow, I could, I could actually be autistic. This might be the answer to why I'm so weird. So I went to get a, a formal diagnosis. I went for one of those long three-day diagnoses. And they told me with a 99.5% probability that I had Asperger's syndrome. This is back when you could still get diagnosed as Asperger's. And I got very upset because I wanted a 100% diagnosis. And they laughed and said that was a very aspy thing for me to demand. <laughs> and so I started tentatively working on the premise that I could indeed be autistic with a 0.5% chance that I could be wrong. But from the months and years since then, as I accumulated more and more evidence, I eventually made my peace with, yes, I'm, I'm definitely autistic. This is, this is definitely why I, I've had so many struggles in my life. And, and the real censure for me was meeting other autistic people, particularly what, what they call high functioning. I'm not a fan of high functioning. I don't like that term because I think it's, it, it misconstrues. I think it's more accurate to say I talk to other autistic people who are hyperverbal 
such as myself and didn't have any major cognitive difficulties. Uh, the more I talked to those people, the more I felt like, yeah, this is, this is definitely me. These people see the, the world the way I do. And, and, and at that point, I was immediately became an autism self-advocate almost as soon as I got my diagnosis. And the reason was is I had this crazy idea that I could walk up to people and say, hi, I'm Dave, and I have Asperger's, a high-functioning autism. And, and, and this means sometimes I'm going to say or do something that might come across like I'm trying to be a jerk or something. But I want you to understand talking to neurotypicals and interacting with them is very difficult for me, and sometimes I mess it up. And when I mess it up, I hurt feelings. So when that happens, please understand I'm not doing it to be a jerk. I'm doing it because this is hard for me. And be a little understanding and accepting and maybe point it out to me. That was my crazy idea. The reality was very, very different. You know, I would tell people that I have Asperger's and they would say, you don't seem like you have autism or I don't think you have autism. And then when I would make a mistake and they would get upset, I would say, see, this is what I was telling you about. And they would say, don't use it as an excuse. So in reality, it wasn't, it wasn't very helpful. <laughs> I, this is I've been down that path along with you a few times and uh, I've, I've come to the same conclusion is for the most part, people don't want to hear it. They, they just, like you say, they take it in, but they don't really accept or understand what you're trying to tell them. See, I think the real difficulty here is that we keep making the mistake of assuming that neurotypicals mean what they say and are communicating literally with their words. Now, the, the more I understand neurotypicals, the more I understand I need to translate what they're saying. And so when someone says, I don't think you have autism, I translate that in my head to, I don't understand autism. Right, or you don't match the pattern of autism that I happen to have in my mind, which I say in America, if you go ask, just you know, walk up to people on the street, what they're going to describe most frequently is going to be a uh, white male child. Correct. And obviously, so you, we, don't, we don't fit in that picture very well. <laughs> <laughs> so what I typically do is I answer that question. You know, when they say, you don't have autism, or I don't think you have autism, I tell them there are a lot of misconceptions about autism out there, and a lot of people don't understand it really well. But I do have official diagnosis, and I am autistic. I think the one that just kills me the most is when people, you know, you you're being you know, front forward with them and telling them that you are autistic so that they you know, can be forewarned if something, you know, you act a little unusual. And their answer is something along the lines of, but you don't look autistic. Right. I don't know what autistic looks like, to be honest, but I just know that I don't look like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I've always been very vocal and proud of my autism. I have a lot of things that I struggle with. Um, obviously, aside from the normal thing of, of you know, social interaction is, is very tricky and difficult for me. If it's a very structured sort of thing, like if I'm giving a lecture, I'm teaching a class or something like that, I think I do really, really well in that because it's very structured. I know the rules. I've got command of the stage. I set when people ask questions and how they ask questions. And, and so everything is very structured and I do very well in exchanges like that. You know, the, the place where I really break out into a cold sweat is a party with more than two or three people in it. That is just too chaotic and too many variables, and so I become a very different person. But I've always been very open and vocal and proud of my autism, and I look at all of my capabilities, my strengths and weaknesses through the lens of autism, and 
one of the big things that has happened to me in the last few years, I now work with a lot of autistic individuals and I have the opportunity to ask them questions. There are things about myself that I always thought, oh, this is me because of my autism. This is an autism thing. Like my desire to just tell everybody on the street that I meet who I am and, and, and all my strengths and weaknesses. And I've discovered that makes me a minority. Those of us who are autism self-advocates are in the minority. Most people who know, you know, aside from the, 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 the hordes of people who are autistic and don't yet realize it, those who do have a diagnosis or do know that they're autistic tend to keep that secret, tend to keep that private. They don't want that to get out. They want everybody to think that they're normal. So now I can't say, well, I'm too honest because I'm autistic. That's not an autistic thing. That's a me thing. Right. I, you know, I look at it as, truthfully, a lot of these traits that we you know, generally refer to as autism traits and, of course, all the associated things that can go along with it, the comorbidities, I personally think of them more as they're just human traits because the reality is we can find a, a neurotypical that isn't good at big parties, but they're right. definitely not autistic. They're just not good in big social situations or I know sensory processing is uh, an area of loud noises just when you and I have been together tend to be something that gets you that for me isn't a challenge. Right. Or to put it another way, it's an extreme human trait. Yes, that's it. I mean, I, I think it falls on the range of the human traits and we're just at the high end of that range. It's not that we have a you know, condition, disease, whatever you want to refer to it as, uh, you know, symptom we're showing. No, we're just showing a human trait at a very high expression, but it's still a human trait that, you know, most humans have somewhere on the range. Frequently, they're on the low end, we're on the high end and, you know, flip around when you hit those emotional, those social things. Suddenly we're on the low end, they're on the high end. And the most powerful bit of evidence for that is that some of the businesses that we've worked for that have made the workplaces more accommodating for autistic members of their workforce, they remove some source of frustration or something that was driving that poor Aspie insane and making it difficult to work. And when they remove it, all of the neurotypical employees say, I like this better. It turns out the things that drive me up a wall and make it impossible for me to do my job is also slightly annoying everyone else. And you remove that source of annoyance and everyone finds it to be a better environment to work in. I, I refer to it as essentially we are the canaries in the coal mine when you put us into a, a work corporate, you know, employment type setting. If you're seeing stress and frustration in your autistic people, it's there in everybody else. They're just covering it up a whole lot better. That's all. I like that. That's a great analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, really, if a manager wants to figure out what's going on, get an Aspie employee and follow them. When they're stressed out, your department's stressed out. <laughs> Just as the thermometer, I think it works great. You know, you talked a lot about employment, so I, I want to introduce really and have you talk a little bit about the uh, Frist Center of Autism and Innovation, because I know that's where you're working with a lot of these employers through. Sure. So when I, at the time I was diagnosed, I was an undergraduate student. And uh, getting to that point was quite a bizarre trip. You know, when I graduated high school, I wanted to be an adult as fast as possible. I also had an obsession with soldiers when I was growing up. Always wanted to be a soldier. And so I joined the Army, and boom, instant adult. You know, instantly I'm on my own. I'm earning a paycheck. I'm, I'm paying my way through life. Unfortunately, I made a, a terrible soldier. <laughs> you can want something really, 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 really bad, but like 
one of my big flaws is I have to understand everything. I have to know the why of everything. And that's not a good trait to be a soldier. A good trait to be a soldier is to follow orders, to salute and say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and do what you're told. And, and saying, why are we doing this? What are, what are the justifications for it? What's the reason? Is a terrible trait to have. So I made an awful soldier, but I still stuck it out for seven years. And I've tried a variety of jobs or a variety of careers trying to find my place in the world. I have been a journalist, a photojournalist. I've been a magazine editor. I've been a layout and designer. I've worked in public affairs and public relations. I have been a truck salesman. I have worked in corporate stints in customer service and loss prevention. I've worked for colleges as a freelancer, editing online college courses. You know, I tried a whole lot of jobs, and most of these jobs, my weaknesses were constantly beating me up. My, my lack of people skills, my inability to understand people when they were using language in, in, a, in a bizarre way, as most neurotypicals use language in a very bizarre, obscure way where they say one thing and mean another. You know, I, I was constantly struggling in that, and I decided in my 30s I was going to give this college thing a try because I kept hitting this wall every time I, I, I got into a job where they like, well, we'd like to promote you or put you in a better job, but we, we can't do that because you only have a high school degree. So I went to college, and it was in college that I discovered this thing called science. And I know it sounds weird, but in my 30s, it was the first time I'd really encountered science and, and what science means. And right away, I realized it was a really good fit for the way my brain works. This obsessive need to understand everything, call it, you know, science actually rewards that. Scientists are people, you know, it, and, and never mind the fact that scientists are a little atypical themselves because most human beings are like, are not like, you know, bugs. I'm going to spend the next 40 years of my life studying <laughs> bugs. I, I want to spend a career figuring out germs. You know, most people do not have that level of commitment or obsession or, or interest in one topic. So right away, as I got around scientific type people, you know, physicists and astrophysicists and chemists and biologists and mathematicians, I found I got along with those people better. In fact, it's really odd in the lab to find a perfectly neurotypical scientist, a scientist who's like obsessed and then with their work and then very normal or typical in all other respects is almost unheard of. Weirdness is so common in the lab that people don't even notice it or care about it. And so rather than judging you harshly about anything you say or do that's abnormal, they're more interested in your work. And if you do good work, they value you and they treat you with respect. So I really started to thrive in that environment. So it was when I was in undergrad that I got my diagnosis and I was on my way to, to grad school to become a physicist. So I had already found my place in the world and I had already worked out how to talk to people and understand people well enough that I, I myself did not need any help. But I also have three kids who are on the spectrum and I worry about their future and I worry about what kind of world that they're growing into. So in 2017, when I finally got my, my PhD for condensed matter physics, and at this point, I had spent a decade working to be an experimental physicist. I had prepared. This is what I was going to be the rest of my life, an experimental physicist. And I would have been happy with that. I would have been thrilled. That would have been a very productive and fulfilling life where I don't get bored and, and my attention doesn't wander. That's something you could easily spend the rest of your life pursuing a branch of, of, of science or physics and, and, and never answer all the questions that you have in your head. So that would have been a, 
a good fit for me. But on the day I, I got my, my PhD, my advisor came to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm opening this new center to help autistic adults find meaningful employment, and I want you to be the executive director. And I said, yes. In a heartbeat, I said, yes. And then I, I mentally crapped myself because I had just spent a decade preparing to be something else. But I said yes for all the reasons that I just stated. And I look back at my life and I've, I've led, I think it can be reasonably argued, I have a very successful life. I have a very successful series of careers and job options and stuff. I get along with neurotypicals pretty well. I, I, I thrive in the workplace. I, I, I do good work and I get recognized for it and, and I get paid for that. And so I, I in, in, in a lot of ways too, I get paid to be me. I get to be my authentic self and get paid a good paycheck. I get paid for my strengths. But I look back on the journey that got me here and there were hundreds and hundreds of little steps where an ally or a mentor would step in and help me figure all this stuff out. You go back in my life and you remove one of those influences and I'm stuck at home in my mom's basement, unable to find employment, like so many men and women out there on the spectrum are. So I recognize, like, the way I did it, the way I got here, we can't demand that of people on the spectrum. We can't expect them to just serendipitously fumble their way through winning the lottery several times to end up in a, in a place of success. There's got to be a systemic way. There's got to be a better way to help the folks out there to, to, to find a, a part of the happiness that I've been able to find. So absolutely, I had to say yes. And in the last couple of years since I've been working on these issues, I've really come to a deeper understanding of people on the spectrum and the kind of struggles they face with. And I have a better appreciation of just how absurdly lucky I am to be where I'm at today. You are in an amazing place. And I certainly understand what you're saying. I mean, obviously I work with you. I work with some of the you know people up in Cornell and such. And so I get to exist in that same world you are where there's wonderful hope of what's going on in autism. And then I go to my day job in a technical company and have to pretend I'm a neurotypical all the time, <laughs> uh, which is, it's terrible being stuck in that, you know, in that position where you know you're not being yourself who you are, you're being what you have to be, but you don't necessarily agree with what you have to be. Precisely. And, and I can tell you from personal experience and, and some of the research and, and studies that we've performed, it doesn't have to be that way. Neurotypicals, like neurotypical supervisors and neurotypical colleagues, there is a way to get them to have some understanding or inkling of the struggles of their autistic peers and be able to communicate with them more effectively and be a little bit more accommodating. It's, it's not that hard. The secret sauce is, is how do you package that message in such a way so the person isn't saying, oh, don't use that as an excuse, but rather going, oh, this is that autistic thing you were telling me about. Well, let me be a little bit more clear and concise in my language. Or let me, let me point out to you you know, precisely what I meant. Or, or let me ask some follow-up questions. So I'm sure I... So I don't misunderstand what you're saying, and I understand where you're coming from. It's not that hard. And, and the businesses that have successfully done this, they, they say that. They say, oh, this isn't nearly as hard as I thought it would be. And they have a, 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 a richer understanding of one another. They get along with one another much better, and, and they become more productive and effective. And, and they're like, wow, why weren't we always doing this? 
And let me add a caveat to that, or not a caveat, let me add an additional point to that. Some supervisors who have been trained to work with their autistic employees have come back and said that their neurotypical employees will come to them and say, I don't know what's different about you, but I think you're a better boss. You seem to pay more attention to what I'm saying. You seem to care about me. And then that fills them with confidence for their supervisors. And they want to do a better job for their supervisors, which is the whole point of a supervisor, right? They want their team on the same page and doing their best to, to, to get the mission done. Exactly. You know, what I run into a problem where, and I agree with you, it's really not that hard. The basic points that a supervisor needs to learn are not amazingly challenging things. You don't need to go get an MBA to understand how to manage an autistic employee well. Uh, but what I run into is the managers who, I guess I would say, um, they're not wanting to learn about how to manage an autistic employee, even though they have one. And you are helping point them to more successful methods to manage autistic employees. But essentially comes down to, yeah, it's really nice you're autistic, but still do it this way. <laughs> yes. And if you think about it carefully, I think it will be obvious why they're like that. Neurotypicals are born into a world where they can communicate with one another instinctually. They've never had to put effort or thought into how they phrase things or, or the sort of meta thinking that goes into communication and stuff like that. They've always just been able to talk to people and get along with people and get a sense for where the conversation's going and, and have a hand at the tiller for steering the conversation in the direction they want to go. And it's all just been easy and obvious and effortless that they don't have to hardly think about it. And now all of a sudden you come to them and say, well, now I want you to start doing something you've never done before. I want you to start thinking about the, the, the concept of language and the concept of communicating. And I want you to try and do some translating of yourself and translating of the other individual. And that's, that's hard for people who are not used to that for people who have never done that before that's kind of tricky. And, and so there's a resistance for one, and this is something we all share in common, autistic and neurotypical alike. We don't like feeling stupid. We don't like being faced with our ignorance. And anytime we start to do something that's different or novel, we make mistakes, we get confused and we don't like that feeling. Now, those of us in like academia and those of us who are, are like, you know, lifelong learners embrace that that concept. We seize that bull by the horns and try to ride it. And eventually we come to the point where when we feel dumb or stupid, we get excited because that means we're about to learn something new or we're about to break into a new regime of understanding. But most people never get that far. Most people never make it to that point. And so rather than, than face it and learn a new skill, they trivialize it and they go, Oh, this is dumb. Oh, this is stupid. This is not worth doing. They come up with excuses so they don't have to make themselves uncomfortable and they don't have to push themselves into a new space. Interesting way to look at it. Uh, the current you know, manager that I report to in my, my day job, when I was talking with them, they actually uh, uh, said something along, paraphrased, but pretty close. I don't have the words that you have to be able to say what I'm trying to say. But what a profound, what a profound statement. I love that statement, and, and that shows that this person recognizes they're trying to effectively communicate, and they're failing, and they're even calling themselves out for it. That is a fantastic place to start. That is a fantastic uh, uh, place to find yourself in, 
it sounds, I mean, it sounds to me like your manager is a smart person. Oh, definitely. You know, there's no doubt that they're a very, very smart person. Uh, in this particular company, they're highly, highly selective, you know, like one in a hundred they'll take in. So yes, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> And yeah, definitely they, you know, they recognized that part of this communication challenge was, I guess you would say they don't provide to me, at least, you know, examining their communication challenge. There's not enough uh, specificity in when they say something. You know, for instance, they may say, I want your time cards turned in by three o'clock or you're going to go on the, the naughty list. And then the question that I have, you know, being, as you say, uh, you know, we tend to wonder why and under, we want to understand everything before we do it. So, well, what's the real cutoff before I go on the list then? Is it 3 p.m. on Friday, like you're telling me you want it turned in? So do I just stop working at that point and just call it a day? Or is there some other date you didn't tell me about? And then they mentioned that, oh, oh well, really, officially, it's Monday at whatever that you go on the list. And now I've got this three o'clock, I want your stuff turned in, but really it doesn't count till Monday. So what is the due date, really? Right. So I, I, my suggestion in a situation like that would be to kind of try and rephrase it and ask them if that's what they mean. So in that case, if I was, if I was you in that situation, I would say, so if I understand you correctly, it's officially due on Monday, but you want me to turn it in by Friday at this time just to give us a window to make sure that it gets done by Monday. I asked it a little bit differently because I actually had some work I was trying to accomplish that was going to go beyond the deadline. So, you know, I was asking of, should I just like stop? Is that deadline something you really, really want us to hit? Or is it you'd like to, but if you got some work to do, keep working, then turn it in. And that was where, you know, the direction I went. I think maybe you were asking it definitely uh, in a, a more clear manner, which is a good suggestion. I appreciate that. Well, it's, I have devoted an obscene chunk of my life trying to tease out how the neurotypical brain works and where they're coming from. Uh, I was particularly fortunate because in my years as a journalist, our life was ruled by deadlines. There were constant, constant deadlines. So I've, I've had a lot of thought and experience, not just soft deadlines either, you know, like the papers coming out Friday, Right. There's no changing. Friday, if Friday, it hits the presses. There's no, you know, Thursday night going, well, we need to slide today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once it gets inked, you're done and all your mistakes, warts and all go out there. And so high pressure environment was not a fun environment for me to be in by any stretch of the imagination, but talking with my, my editors and talking with my, my fellow journalists over time, I developed a pretty good sense of what people mean when they set deadlines there are hard deadlines and there are soft deadlines. And there was this terrible thing they used to do in the military where we would have a formation. Uh, the, the, the most obscene example was a division-wide formation, 20,000 troops on the field. And they would say, this formation is going to be at 2 p.m. And so the brigade commanders would say, well, I want you guys here five minutes before because I want to make sure everybody's here. And then the company commanders were like, well, I want you here five minutes before that so everyone's here. <laughs> and the platoon leaders were like, I want you here five minutes before that to make sure we're here. And then the squad leader, so you'd end up like the entire formation is standing there waiting half an hour before the actual format. I used to boggle <laughs> at the obscene waste of time that these people had taking this, this logical reasoning to absurd links. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is absolutely a riot. You know, one thing I think you hit on, and really it, it's your journalist background that I think makes it where you're so understandable, both, you know, neuro, uh, you know, diverse uh, group. We tend to get together and communicate and talk and do pretty well regardless. But you definitely have that ability to communicate over to the more neurotypical side in a, a manner that I would say is fairly rare amongst us Aspies. And, you know, I certainly, uh, that's one of the things that I, I appreciate talking with you is how you do that and trying to pay attention to it. Yes. In some cases, I've, yeah, it's, it's, I owe such a debt to journalism. It, it's because I learned how to ask questions, how to ask leading questions, you know, how do you, how to steer a conversation. And what was really fun about it is I could find ways to steer a conversation to find answers that I wanted to know. I learned how to get comfortable asking people questions and how to ask follow-up questions and stuff like that. And you're right. Along the way, I kind of started to piece together how neuro... Now, I'm probably not nearly as good as I think I am. The fact of the matter is, on almost a daily basis, I learned some new shocking discovery about neurotypicals that I didn't understand before. A lot of times, I know what they do, but the why they do it is still a mystery to me. A perfect example... The other day I was uh, advising, uh, uh, I was talking to a graduate advisor who has an autistic student working for him. Now he also has a benefit if this advisor also has an autistic son. And so he puts a lot of time and effort and thought into communicating effectively with his son. And I mentioned the fact that neurotypicals never say what they mean. They often skirt around and, and, and play around without actually just coming out and saying things, and it makes it really difficult to understand. And he said, oh, well, that's because we have this really powerful instinct in us, this really powerful drive not to offend one another and not to say the wrong thing. And so we're always really careful not to say the wrong thing, and sometimes that prevents us from just speaking our mind and, and, and saying things. To me, that was pure gold. I knew what neurotypicals were doing, but I didn't understand or appreciate why they were doing it. And that really, I felt like I had gotten a peek inside the neurotypical soul and had a little bit better understanding. And as a result, I, it garnered more sympathy from me. It garnered, I, I don't like to use the word empathy because empathy is where you see someone else in an emotional state and then your, mirror, your emotional state mirrors them. I don't really have that, but I can be extraordinarily sympathetic. I think there's cognitive empathy. That's the way I look at it. Yes, I'm, I'm with yes. you. It's not that I feel some kind of emotion towards them, but mentally, logically, cognitively, the plate of the homeless, the plate of, you know, pick whatever group you want. Logically, I'm with them. <laughs> the more you understand someone or something's nature, the, the, the better you can predict what they do and why they do it. And I find the more effective you can communicate. You know what, I've actually kind of created a, uh, I don't know, I call it the concept of the tribe, to try and illustrate to us, you know, neurodiverse type people, how to function. Because one of the problems I've always had is, you know, throughout my life, again, my story's a lot like yours, I was diagnosed very late, you went through life, you know, having great successes, having great failures all the way. One of the, the things in... Uh, I guess dealing with the, the whole neurotypicals that I've 
you know, I, I keep coming back to and I, I keep learning with them is they function in a way I don't understand, which I think you certainly agree with. Mm-hmm. And I sat back and said, you know, I've been told all my life, why can't you act normal? Why can't you act like everybody else? Not knowing what it was that I had, just I was different. And unfortunately, that doesn't tell us very much when a neurotypical says that because we don't know what everybody else actually acts like other than watching them saying that doesn't make any sense to us. So I came up a model. <laughs> yes. I, when, I was in, when I was in high school, I used to, uh, I became convinced that there were a set of classes I was missing. Right, right. Because somebody, somebody would say something insane and I would think, oh, that's just because they're crazy. But then I'd pose the, the same hypothetical to five other people and they'd say the same insane thing. And I'm like, where are you learning this? And they would say, Everybody knows this, and my brain would break a little, right? Because I've clearly given you evidence that I don't understand this, and your answer is everybody understands this. How are you able to do that? How are you able to look at a green wall and call it brown? Like that, that just breaks my brain. Well, I've come up with this concept, and I just refer to it as the the concept of the tribe. And if you think of neurotypicals as if they were a, a small indigenous kind of tribe, you know, three, four family type units. And if you were to just think in a tribe model, how would you act? Would you talk back to the tribe leader? Probably not a good idea. <laughs> would you make sure that you don't make you know, the warriors feel like you're a jerk? Um, not a good idea. And to me, it's kind of a working model that I can, I can work the model and get the idea of why you know, being embarrassed in front of the group if it's the tribe being embarrassed in front of the whole tribe, that's your world. I, okay, I could see where that would not be comfortable. Mm. Uh, so I, the model to me, I, while I 100% accept, and I think this kind of comes from doing writing and such like you have, you've just done a lot more, the recognition that you can't write all the details you know because most people will never read it unless you're writing a research paper. Mm. So it's the same kind of thing. It, yes, it is a diluted down concept of reality, but at least it gives me a handle and the people I've shared it with a handle when they deal with a neurotypical of why do they act the way they do? Well, right. just, just think of them as being this tribe and everybody knows the rules of the tribe because they're in the tribe, except you and okay. me, but, but that's what they think is everybody knows them. Yeah, and one of the early mistakes I used to make is I would think that I could just go to these people and ask them and they'd have an answer. Right. At the time, time, I didn't realize that a lot of what neurotypicals do is instinctual. They don't stop and think about why do I behave this way or why do I react this way? It's just their emotions tell them to go this way and that, and they, they just do it. They just follow their emotions and go with it, and it just feels right to them. So it used to be a very, I used to have a lot of frustrating early conversations where I would try to ask people to break down and explain to me why that they think and they would just look at me like I was nuts and they would say like that's just obvious or everybody knows that uh, I wish somebody had sat down young teenage version of me and said don't bother asking them they don't know they, they're following their instincts they've got their wiring that's sending them this way you know there are ways you can find out how they work how their brains work and stuff but it's just not just asking them directly or not most of them you know we're, we're, we're doing a broad brush here and of course, with any sort of stereotype, there are always exceptions to the rules. I've been very fortunate that early on in my life, I did encounter some people who, although they were neurotypical, did put a lot of thought and effort into these sort of things and did find it 
uh, intellectually challenging or stimulating to have conversations about these. And those people were gold mines to me because they would actually stop and reflect and try to answer. If they didn't know, they would say, I don't really know. It's just, that's just, everybody seems to feel that way. I feel that way too. I don't really know where that comes from. That was such a profoundly important thing for me to be able to have those conversations and start figuring them out. Because like anything in life, I, I mean, you know this, you, you work in the tech field. You know, something is baffling and incomprehensible until you start to figure out how it behaves and how it operates. And you don't have to have a complete picture. You know, I don't have to be fluent in a particular programming language. If I understand the basics of how computer programming works, I have a little bit of understanding when the program goes wrong or when it does something bizarre. I have a bit of a, it's not just some magic, you know, it's not the universe trying to punish me or, or, or do something crazy like that, but I understand, oh, this is a bug or this was an unintended feature or something like that. Having some understanding of the nature of a thing helps you to kind of wrap your head around why it's behaving the way it's behaving. You know, Chris Turner, which I, I don't know if you know him or not, he's down in Australia and works uh, in the autism at work as an independent consultant, but not, uh, not a neurodiversity, neurotypical. Great guy, though. The way that he puts it is, I don't need to understand why they do it. I just need to accept that's the way that they operate. Yes. And to me, that's confusing because when it sits down to like you and I, we could sit down and chat through when we said something, if somebody questioned us, and probably come back with some underlying traits and you know history of why we think and believe that way. Right. But like you say, when you go to a lot of neurotypicals and ask them, they give you kind of a blank stare of, what do you mean? It's just, I just know. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I've had just such a great time talking with, you know, you and I from having been together before, know we could talk for uh, many more hours and still not run out of interesting things to chat with. But I know we all have uh, schedules and plans and such. Dave, if uh, somebody wanted to reach out to you or to the uh, Frist Center, what, what's the best way for them to uh, contact you in the center? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is vu.edu slash one word autism and innovation. So that's vu.edu slash autism and innovation. I imagine if you Google the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation, you're going to find us. We have a very active uh, social media. We're very active on Instagram. We have a very active website that we frequently update. We're ending this episode with Dr. Dave at this point to give us a good place to start on the next one. This episode will be continued on the next episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. Wait till it comes out and you can continue it here as Dave and I continue to chat. Na, na, na. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. Hey, it will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com, where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe.